Hi, everyone. Welcome to News and Brews Sports Biz, our podcast series that advocates for the financial voices in college athletics and features new developments impacting the business of college sports. I'm Ken Kurzel. And I'm Katie Davis. As summer comes to a close and college athletic programs are preparing to drink out of the fall semester fire hose, we're mindful of the behind the scenes work that comes along with closing out the financial year. So, of course, the topic that's been near and dear to our hearts is telling your financial story. Joining us today is Matt Brown, publisher of Extra Points and part of the D1 Ticker family. Welcome, Matt. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So Matt's joining us today to share from his perspective the importance of telling your financial story, and we will also take a deeper dive into a few other hot topics in the college athletics industry right now. And I would like to also point out, Matt, you are our first repeat guest on News & Brews. So congratulations. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have to update my LinkedIn profile when we're done here. That's high yeah. praise, knowing so many other people that have, that have come through. Yeah, clearly that's a huge moment. And um, part of the reason that you are one of our repeat guests is that I think that um, the idea of telling your financial story is something that, you know, resonates with you as well from what we've seen, especially as we read extra points uh, and all of that. What would you say, Matt, is kind of one of your main focuses or objectives in that space of telling your financial story with um, your various media menus? Sure. So what, what I am trying to do with my publication is, is, is reach a very narrow audience, I think, of an intersection between industry voices, people that are ADs, SWAs, marketing, people that work on the school side, people that work in the conference office side or the, the vendor side, You also have the student side. We have a lot of individuals that are studying the business of college athletics or college administration as undergrads who use extra points. And then a a segment that I refer to with the deepest love in my heart of giant nerds. And and by that, I mean mean fans, people that don't work in this world that really want to understand how everything works. There are so many wonderful media outlets that will be more than happy to tell you who is going to win the Alabama-Georgia game. They're going to break down their recruiting. They're going to break down their depth chart. They can use advanced stats to tell the story of the game. And I am going to watch that same football game. I'm going to watch that same basketball game. And I recognize I can't, I'm not going to be able to compete in that space. I can't break down tape better than 37 other people on the internet. But there's, as you two know, as everyone listening to this knows, there's this enormous business infrastructure that supports all of those things, which is often not as well understood or explained. And that's where I'm trying to write. It is not just to advocate for a better decision-making process within college athletics, but to help all parties understand how this stuff all actually works. And so much of that is, of course, a financial component, because how athletic departments get their money how they spend that money, how they determine what to use that money for, um, how the, they, they evaluate different potential opportunities and, and allocate those resources, that, that, that's an enormously important story. It helps determine who's going to be good at college football on Saturdays. It determines what kind of sports you sponsor. It helps shape the relationship you have with the academic side of your campus. And that is a major point, uh, part of what I try to do, whether that's through interviews or FRS reports or vendor conversations or many other things. And I know I can't do it perfectly because I'm unfortunately not a forensic accountant. Uh, I like to joke that if I was better at math, I wouldn't be a reporter. I'd be probably on on the other side here of the desk. But I I think our publication has done a pretty good job of, of providing some more context behind some of those numbers and how they really fit into everything. No, that's very clear. And, um, you know, Katie, I wonder if you could share a little bit about, um, we had the 
fortunate experience recently of uh, presenting at CABMA, uh, which is the business management uh, office side of, uh, of NACTA. And um, there was a, a, you know, a survey that you put out to, to try to get, get a little bit more information about the idea of telling your financial story. And what did you learn through that? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, everyone knows these are uncertain times. Um, and really, the theme that we've been seeing is the financial story is just so important in maintaining the awareness, um, trust and support. And of course, the strategy of how schools would want to tell their financial story differs based on the dynamics of like that university's governance, um, what their financial success is, and even what the campus's attitude is toward athletics. Mm, yeah. And um so as we did the, the pre-NACTA survey, um, you know, really we wanted to focus on that and, and really also, you know, I'll, I'll talk more about some of the takeaways we had in the session, but from the survey itself, um, you know, we made sure we, of course, surveyed a lot of business officers, but also surveyed the media. Um, and we surveyed other consultants that work in the space just to see how they utilize financial information, what they think is important, what they think it's confusing or missing and, and really tried to break that down. And, um, you know, I think, and Matt, I'd like to hear your take on some of these, um, just from what you're seeing and and the needs. So like on the media side, um, some of the comments of, you know, financial information that is important to the public. Um, one of the statements was, I think the public needs to understand that um, athletic departments aren't designed to run profits and that money in and money out isn't how the reports work. Um, also some comments about revenue and expenses by sport versus only reporting totals um, is important because very few members of the public understand how many sports operate in the red and are supported by those that do produce revenue and, ex and excess of expenses. Um, and then uh, others, talking about the need for a better breakdown of direct institutional support to better understand, um, you know, what's cash and what's non-cash, like tuition waivers and other non-cash transfers and um, those kinds of questions. So, Matt, you know, what, what are your thoughts on those areas? I think for those three things, I feel like my, my initial response would be a, a resounding yes. This is something that I try to kind of very gently and lovingly beat into the skull of my readers. Because whether you work in the industry or not, you know, it's easy to look at, say, the USA Today or the Sportico database. You see, all right, I see top line revenue here. I see top line expenses here. I know how to balance a checking account. I know a little bit about what a PL statement looks like. Ergo, I can apply those same principles to this. And uh, UCLA is clearly in the red, and Ohio State is a beacon of like perfect financial management, picking those schools at random, right? Um, and of course, we all know what that's not the full picture, right? You're not, you're not, nothing a part of that about an FRS report or nothing about how you, you uh, handle your accounting is designed to show a profit. That's not necessarily the goal of the department. And a lot of the um, line items that are mentioned in these reports aren't cash. They might be inter-university transfers. There might be how you uh, come up with the value of um, you know, say an athletic scholarship for somebody that's an in-state uh, athlete versus an out-of-state athlete and, and how that's calculated. And, and all this is important metrics, but to a lay person right now, they're not seeing that. And, and quite frankly, when I say lay people, I also mean the vast majority of reporters. What I think is important for folks on the accounting and the, and the, C the CFO side to understand 
most of your like your typical university beat writer is probably working for a local newspaper that's laid off some folks that they, they have they don't have as much editorial staff they don't have as much research or support staff but the, the the work has not decreased so you are covering recruiting you're covering all the press conferences you're covering what's happening during the games and at practices and chasing other things down and you probably only have a tiny amount of time to go break down or, or maybe you do one story a year about the annual financial report and you're probably missing a ton of context. And that person um, does not have the time or the infrastructure like resources from their own publication mm-hmm. to, to develop any of those things. And so I, there, I think it's, I know it's a great source of frustration to your listeners to see relatively misleading stories get published about uh, department finances, but that's only because they see what's, what was in the one open records request, you know, absent any context. Um, to the extent that th- those numbers can be translated into things that are either more cash heavy or more tangible uh, you know, product oriented will make it easier for people that got C pluses in, in college math <laughs> to understand. Like, let me, let me give you an example, actually, a practical example about a story that I've been working on, which I think is somewhat related, but maybe can help explain why it's important to not just give numbers, but to help explain what the numbers are for. So at the Division II level, um, two athletic conferences recently signed a broadcast agreement with Flow Sports to show all of their games. And if you are a fan of a Big Ten or like an SEC institution, you you probably know, hey, broadcast revenue is gigantic money. You know, they might get 50, 60, 70, 90 million dollars a year. It looks like the Big Ten is going to clear 100 million dollars a year. That's a major revenue source for these schools. Now, that's not true at Division II. That's not true for most of the G5. Um, but the headline will say like seven-figure rights fee uh, over four years. And no one's like getting out the calculator and breaking down what that means. So, but, but by as virtue of that deal, a lot of Division II broadcast events are now going to be behind a paywall on this, on Flow Sports. So if you don't understand what that money actually means and you're a fan of Ferris State uh, or Wingate or something, I could see how you'd be very frustrated. Like, look, you just got the seven figure windfall. Your department's already small already. And now you're charging me 15 bucks a month to watch Michigan tech. You guys agree. But I think to be able to pair the numbers and the words, so to speak, to explain, yes, seven figures divided by 10 teams divided by four years equals this. And also that money will then turn into production, uh, quality investments. We are using this rights fee money, this $25,000, to buy a couple more cameras. So your broadcast doesn't look like it was shot on a potato or we're going to be able to actually hire a second graduate assistant to, as an SID. So you can actually get live stats for softball. And when you translate it that way, here's the money, which is for X, which, so you had the spreadsheet evidence turned into English. That's really important, not just for the reporter, but I think that's important for the consumer and the athlete to understand too. And I don't know if and this is the failing of, of me and my peers and this probably whole industry. I don't know if collectively we do a good job of explaining this is what the money on this spreadsheet actually means in real life. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You know that, and, and we're <clears throat> going to talk a lot more about um, media rights and new media deals when we jump into hot topics. But yeah. I mean, this is the same, even what we're, we even see at power five level. And, you know, I often say more money, more problems, because those schools also have to buy better equipment and invest in more people um, and and all of these things. And sometimes even just communicating that not only with the general public who's frustrated with a paywall or they're increasing, um, you know, 
cable bill or whatever the case may be, but also focused on um, even just who's on campus and understanding yeah. what that means. And they're, you know, depending on the campus, some campuses have agreements. They say X percent of your media rights is going to campus. Um, and that's also something that's not very clear in these reports. And as you and I've talked before, it's it's not apples to apples when you're comparing schools. It's apples to rocket ships in some yep. cases. And and so that's, you know, really at all levels, but definitely from the public's perception, it's so um, important for them to understand that. But also knowing a lot of campus stakeholders are part of the public and reading the same things and getting their first piece of information from from the, the news. And so um, understanding that, okay, this big deal isn't really as big as you think it is once you take into account all of these things that are also going to impact campus. And so don't, don't cut the budget yet or make huge overhauls on the level of institutional support you're giving yet because you need to understand the full picture, which um, is really one of the things we, we like to push a lot. And, yeah. you know, one thing that we try to, you know, tell schools is that the FRS, which is what everyone relies on, um, is not useful in a vacuum. And um, you are like the king of FOIA. <laughs> and and what I like to say is there is, um, there really are three certainties in life to college athletics. You know, there's death, taxes, and FOIAs. <laughs> and so you can make a t-shirt on that if you want that. But, um, <laughs> it's but funny, I mean, the, 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 our, our version of that joke is death, taxes, and billable hours which are generally <laughs> tied to FOIA, but uh, yeah, no, I, yeah. yeah. And so big, big fan of that law. So I think, you know, calling an athletic department and asking detailed questions um, and for athletic departments to really be focused on being prepared for giving detailed answers to help fill those gaps that you were talking about. Um, you know, and, and I use the revenue shown for licensing and what percentage of that, um, is being split with the university. Um, or it could be the same with parking or all sorts of other categories where they're only showing a portion of that because it's being shared. And of course, that's just one example of where the numbers aren't being um, maybe accurately uh, depicted just in one report. Um, and, you know, I think also understanding no one really teaches the media how to report on this stuff and the questions to ask. No, and so, not. you know, that's one reason why we're doing this um, to really try to put a lot more out there and just a different perspective for people to think about when you're approaching this, the financial storytelling. And, um, you know, another member of the media told me, um, you just have to make mistakes until someone inside college athletics takes the time to teach you. And so if you're willing to just invest a little bit of time in somebody that's continuing to contact you and and really build that relationship, educate them, and then leverage their voice to help tell your story. And it doesn't always have to be such a, a frustrating process um, that we sometimes hear about. Um, and so some, some things in this survey that we took um, from the business officer's perspective, um, you know, one, I'll quote one FCS business offer that, officer that said, uh, there seems to be a narrative nationally that all schools bring in hundreds of millions of dollars every year and they're inventing ways to spend the money. The reality is there's much more um, schools at the FCS, non-football D2 and D3 level that rely heavily on institutional support and student fees 
and are limited in their ability to generate revenues to support all of their expenses. Um, so there, that does happen a lot. Um, and I think that, you know, the media understands that, uh, but I think not everyone in the public does. And, and so when we asked, you know, what types of internally generated financial reports do they already have at their fingertips that could better help tell their financial story that they could utilize to, you know, bring pits and pieces together to share with the media, to share with campus stakeholders, um, really looking at, you know, what's not in the FRS. So there's no balance sheet. So there's nothing that goes into the financial sustainability of college athletics. So there's, there's the reserves, there are the other assets that aren't cash that, that you have at your disposal. And there are also liabilities that you're on the hook for down the road. So if it's, you know, things you've invested in buildings and, you know, updating your football facilities and, and whatever that case may be. And then on the flip side, you've got debt service that you have, you're on the hook for paying these things off or you're in the middle of a capital campaign with a bunch of money that's come in, but you haven't earned enough to be able to start the building project. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of that that just is missing that could be asked for, or um, also using, um, you know, looking at monthly financials compared to what the budget is, or even just breaking down basic categories like, you know, what's the, you know, really the mission of athletics. So, you know, how you're operating, you're paying the people that are supporting athletes, you're paying financial aid to the athletes versus then all the other flashy stuff like TV money and tickets and gifts and all of that stuff. And even if you can just break those two things apart and really be able to differentiate that and then explain why some of these other revenues help to support uh, the other costs that, that are really the mission of the athletic department. Cause sometimes, you know, it seems like that gets lost. Um, but what are your thoughts on those areas? No, I, I, the complaint that the FCS individual shared in that survey comes up most of the time I talk to somebody in the FCS or in the Sunbelt or conference USA. And I, 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 I understand there's a couple of ways I think it may be easier to, to share that information. What you're describing right now about liabilities is really important and is something that I'm sure not only do most fans not totally understand, and this is not me being critical, but I think most beat writers don't totally understand because you don't really take time to study municipal bonds um, uh, when, you're, when you're a sports writer. Like that isn't something that, that, that comes up very often. So I mean, what I would consider doing I want to say Georgia might do this and maybe a couple other places do, do in the, in the, in the SEC. If you release an FRS report and I would encourage everybody don't wait for some nosy dork like me to foil it. Just if someone's going to do it every year, you might as well just put it on your website. Like half the SEC does um, just like you should just proactively disclose your coaching contracts and a, a couple other of the same things that people ask for all of the time. Your, your, your open records clerks will thank you for this. But you should then share that document literally with context. And you can put that right on your page in the same place where anybody downloads it. You can say like frequently asked questions and you can make up the questions, right? About these reports or some context may be helpful, including explaining what debt service actually is. Okay, just so you know, on this standardized report, it will show up as an expense for this. 
this is what that means over 20 years, right? Mm -hmm. This, you know, this is your, the mortgage on your house and the loan that we had to take to go build Grizzly Stadium are not exactly the same thing. And, and uh, anybody who's interested in big sky athletic department finances should be aware of that. So I, I think that's important. And then I think also to kind of to, to, to go back to what I was saying a little bit, anytime an athletic department, uh, whether that's from the, the, the CFO side or the comm side or the senior administration side, can tie those numbers into words or something tangible, it's going to make it easier for people to understand. So the idea of how you tell your financial story from me and the cheap seats out here, I would think that has to be a, a multi-department effort. And if you are trying to explain to a skeptical public that your FCS athletic department is not, in fact, generating $40 million in earned revenue, this is a chance for you to say, hey, this is what, you know, a typical Mountain West institution has. And here's our stadium. And let's, you know, let, let's walk through here. And here we're able to do this for Austin Awards. We can do this for our cost of attendance. But here are X, Y, and Z that are not at our level. Mm -hmm. Or here's what, how, what staffing looks like here. So then people can understand what differences in revenue means, not just for increased expenses, but in bodies and buildings and things that are a little bit easier for us liberal arts majors to understand. And when you work, when you wrap your arms, arms around it that way, I don't think anybody that spends 15 minutes on a big sky campus versus a high level Mountain West campus versus a Pac-12 campus would think these are all financial peers. They're clearly not. Um, but if, if you're not, if all you're doing is reading CBS or ESPN or NBC about big time college athletics, I can see how you might you might reach a different conclusion. You, I, I don't think anybody sharing these numbers should make any kind of assumption about what the typical consumer, and I, and I would include a typical beat writer, knows about those things. You know, the advice you have about putting things online and those frequently asked questions mm -hmm. where you can kind of Excellent. control the narrative, that's, that's exactly yep. the advice that we give. And And, you know, we want schools to be cognizant. There is a fine line between transparency and oversharing. And, and so really understanding that um, and, and that when you're able to give that information, maybe they're, you don't have people digging so hard um, because they're just trying to find something to use, right? But if you're helping to educate them and, and give them what they're trying to get, I think that's going to be the most strategic approach all around. Now, granted, yeah. you know, it's, it's going to feel uncomfortable if you're not used to putting your financials on the internet for the world to see. But at the end of the day, people are still, if they care, they're going to figure out a way to see it because it's just the nature of the business. Um, so I think that's yeah. all really great. And um, is there anything else from, you know, your perspective of what would help um, you or your peers better tell a financial story? No, it's, it's a good point. I, I think on that front, I would just add that when it comes to finances, Honest to God, when a reporter's asking for it, it usually isn't automatically adversarial. I, I file a request for everyone's FRS report every single year. Am I doing it so I can embarrass somebody in six months? Almost certainly not. I, I, I use that data to be really critical maybe once a year. And it's generally when I think somebody dropped a sport but they, that they didn't necessarily need to. And, and I might look at that. I, I, honestly, like for me, and this is true for the USA Today database, and it's true for Sportico, and it's true for some of these other ones out there. It's mostly used by graduate students. It's mostly used for researchers. And in fact, some of that data and some of that research financially benefits you, the brand. Like data that I have collected via open records and put in public that I know and everyone's like, I, I wish Matt wouldn't do this. 
Well, I mean, I, I, that was used by the University of North Carolina's business school to produce research on how to more efficiently sell tickets and then send that research out to, to athletic directors. Like, you know, so um, there are going to be times when, yes, so like your local media is going to adversarially sniff around. And a lot of times that's, that's going to be about emails or about communications rather than financial data. Um, don't tell my other reporter friends this. Like nine times out of 10, you send somebody a contract, the reporter's not even sure what they're looking at. Like, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to do the screen cap of like the one big number. And I want to see if any of these clauses are funny. And then I want to stick it up on the internet and hope that somebody else figures it out. So I, I would err on the side of disclosure there. And that will also help people know what kind of informed questions to ask. And I would not be afraid to provide from your side of the desk context around what those numbers mean, because Honestly, most of the time, like your local reporter is not going to look at that and think, I think you're full of baloney. They're probably going to go, oh, so that's what institutional support means. That makes more sense because I thought it was just a straight cash transfer when we know that that, that isn't always the case. It's erring mm-hmm. mm-hmm. on the side. I mean, I, I understand that both of us are going to have different definitions about the appropriate level of disclosure. As a reporter, I'm always going to err on the side of more, <laughs> even if I don't need it. But, <clears> but err, oh, and for these basic transactional things, Erring on the side of 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 uh, of sharing will buy you trust and credibility from the media and give you an opportunity to better explain what that data actually means. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, I think sharing is good, and when it's got the context and transparency, and I think you know, starting there, and if schools, um, you know, can find some ways to really use it to to help advocate for the industry. And that's really the goal of what everyone's looking for. So um, thank you for those tips. So now we're going to jump into some other hot topics in the industry right now. Um, The first one being conference realignment. Um, And a lot's been going on and and I would venture to say it's not over. (laughs) And so um, Matt, what are you seeing in this area? Uh, I, 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 understand that we're not sharing video here. I uh, have black hair, but I have a little bit of gray hair and like the front, like this very attractive skunk, like stripe here at the beginning. And I tell people like, this wasn't the case before Texas and Oklahoma. Like this it has completely ruined my typical slower part of the summer with all of this. And you're right. I, I don't think it's slowing down or I, don't, or I don't think it's over. And it's happening for a couple of different reasons on, on different levels, right? At the very highest level, it, I honestly believe, based on my conversations, is that these convers- these movements are not just about maximizing broadcast revenue, although that's certainly the case uh, with UC- USC and UCLA moving to the Big Ten. There's also an element of seeking to consolidate political and administrative power. So at the, you know, at the higher level of, of your, your Big Tens, your SECs, your Pac-12s, at, at this level, where we're seeing schools look to change conferences, not just to maximize their, um, their, their broadcast revenue, although that's unquestionably a major part of what's happening here. I, I also really believe there's an element about controlling political and administrative power. Like, I, I think it's important, you know, I think most of this audience knows, but these conversations are happening while the tra- NCAA Transformation Committee is meeting, while the Division I group is rewriting its constitution, including the rules about uh, championship access, about how revenue is going to be distributed, and about what it means to be a Division One institution. I have heard, you know, we, we just saw Florida Gulf Coast's president, Mike Martin, who was over at LSU beforehand, say just a couple of days ago, hey, I, you know, we're, we're preparing for a world where the A-Sun might not have an automatic bid anymore. 
And that has been very similar to what I have been hearing from low major administrators over the last five months. That like the current NCAA tournament system, we they believe is likely to change. So if you are a world, have a, a situation here where maybe you could consolidate 20 of the most powerful athletic brands, even if your revenue dips a little bit, but now your broadcast contract is the same as the March Madness contract, um, you have the ability to dictate terms to the NCAA a little bit more. If, if the SEC said, we want to do our own softball championship, if they expand it again, because we're going to have 18 of the top 24 teams anyway, they're going to be able to do that. Uh, and, 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 and control things and have access to that power in a way that maybe they didn't 10 years ago. So that is something to be cognizant of on, on the high end. On the lower end, you still have a couple of leagues right now that are very close to the minimum number of teams that they need to be like a, an NCAA sanctioned conference. You want to expand to increase stability. You want to expand to uh, uh, decrease your travel burden for a lot of these other Olympic sports, especially if you're not near a major airport and you have to drive everywhere. And uh, expanding or making changes to find better institutional fits. It isn't about trying to squeeze a little bit more money out of your TV contract. I'm not saying this to, to be disrespectful to anyone, but I know about how much money you know the Ohio Valley Conference will make from TV or the A Sun or the Southland, and and that's not enough to make anybody change their mind about anything. Like you, you, you make those decisions for other reasons, and those conversations at the D two, you know, one AAA FCS level. Those are going to continue to happen independent of anything that, say, Notre Dame or Washington decide to do in the next six months. Yeah, and I mean, Ken, what are your thoughts as far as, you know, we've talked to some of the, the different conferences at, at, the, at the conference level. And there are some, even at the Power Five level, that have concerns about just escalating costs. And yeah. could they take some lessons learned during the pandemic and and continue on with some of the things that had to change to be able to contain some of these escalating costs and can um, yeah, you want to share some of that? Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that we commonly heard that was a positive outcome, um, especially with the, the really heavy pandemic year was just them changing some of the ways they did scheduling and even like schedule, especially for non, you know, the Olympic sports, um, sports other than men's basketball and, and, and football, but, you know, looking at, Hey, could they, consolidate scheduling into like almost mini pod areas in certain cities and have um, economies of scale and they're uh, they're buying for um, for lodging for that weekend things of that nature for travel so um, you know trying to think a little bit more creatively uh, in the way that um, maybe you can get some economies of scale that would uh, that would help uh, with the cause especially again as you look at um, at the Olympic sports for instance that was one idea. Yeah. And I mean, I think is, you know, you know, even looking up at the Big Ten and UCLA and USC are going to really have to think about their travel costs as well as everyone on the East Coast that they're competing against um, that are now going to have to make that trek over to California. And and are there ways they could operate smarter in in these other areas? And so I think, you know, tying some of this into telling the financial story uh, to your point earlier about, okay, conference realignment, there are revenue impacts, whether it's from TV deals or tournaments or whatever the case may be. Um, and the, I think the gap is going to continue to widen between the haves and have nots in this area. And of course, there's a lot of, you know, unknowns of what the next two to five years is even going to look like. Um, 
once you take into account, you know, what's going to happen um, with athlete compensation and all of these other things, and how is that ripple effect going to impact these Olympic sports? And so trying to figure all of that out um, is, you know, almost impossible at this point, because you don't know which direction things are going, but the ability to say, okay, here's where what's just happened, here's what we're anticipating going forward. And it's not that we just have a bigger pile of gold that we're swimming in on the 50 yard line, but there's actually, um, you know, use of these funds and uh, not just to be there to make a profit, which is things that you've, of course, said a lot. Um, Any other thoughts on conference realignment? I mean, the the other thing I think that as a reporter I'm interested in are how schools think about telling that financial story to other schools, because certainly there are going to be institutions that are listening to this that are thinking, we would not mind necessarily being a part of a different league moving forward. And, and it's one thing if you're trying to, to post your way into the Big Ten, if anyone's figured out how to do that, I, I, I'd love to hear about it. But if you are maybe an institution that is ambitious or is growing or thinks that you could be something more in 10 years than you are right now, how you communicate your budget situation and your donor base and where you are in your market and everything is immensely important in case there's opportunities down the line you, with, with instability coming, you want to give yourself as many options as possible. And it's, I, I have noticed when, as soon as realignment becomes public and then people begin to speculate about who should be taken or, or what makes the most sense, that um, a handful of fans will seize on a few metrics and that kind of takes on a life of its own. And, and how, you know, I, I, I mean, it's how people are, are figuring out, okay, this is the story I want to go tell to the reporter. This is the story I want to go tell to our fans. This is the story I want to go tell to people who might give us money. Here's the story I want to go tell to my Caresco um, or to my peers here, my w- potential peers in the Summit League. Those are those are different strategies, but it's the, the same principle. It, I wouldn't even assume that that um, other professionals will necessarily get everything you want. You want them to learn from your data unless you walk them through it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, and I, and I still think my best idea about uh, conference realignment and containing costs or creating new revenues was for USC and UCLA. We were talking about them. They need to start their own charter travel company and go ahead and, uh, you know, they can they can be uh, making revenue from from all those that have to come visit them as well as reducing their costs on that. So that, I, I don't even I don't even think that's entirely a joke. Like I floated, <laughs> I floated this. I think it's people. a brilliant idea, too. I'm glad that you support. No, I, well, I, I have nothing else. Like I've I've I reached out to people saying like they should just buy an airplane. Right. Yeah. Like I, yeah. I know those are expensive, but. A lot of universities have planes. You should just well, a lot of a, a lot of schools have planes. They may as well just start a whole company, though. I, I mean, mean if LA they, Air. If Hawaii hasn't done it yet, so you listen, these guys have a little bit more capital coming in. There, there, there you go. Turn a, there you go. Turn right. a, yeah, uh, uh, make make lemonade out of some lemons, some very expensive lemons. So, yeah. kind of tying in uh, one of our next hot topic that that does tie in with conference realignment because there's the trickle down effect of it is you know a lot of the Power Five media rights uh, and just last night you know coming out a New York Post breaking that um, you know CBS was going to be potentially uh, a new partner for the Big Ten and what that looks like and them kind of narrowing down the story of. Uh, CBS, NBC, and Fox being the, the, the Big Ten partners in it and going away from ESPN and ABC. Um, Matt, what are you hearing in the, the media rights area? I thought one thing that was interesting about that is it talked about 
the fact that that could actually be an indirect benefit for the Big 12 and the Pac-12 as ESPN now all of a sudden maybe has a little more powder in their keg to spend on those areas. Yeah. So, so, you know, we are recording this here on Tuesday afternoon. And so things may, may have shifted a little bit to the, as best as I understand it, the next big 10 deal is uh, likely is we'll have Fox as the, as your main partner and is likely to include CBS and NBC as associate partners. So then the big 10 will be able to broadcast their most important football game at noon. Eastern you'll have CBS taking the old historic sec CBS slot at three 30 Eastern. You've got NBC playing a big 10 game in prime time and then BTN and Peacock as your streaming partner to take the, you know, the, the Mac versus the bad big 10 game uh, that, that, you know, that, that might otherwise live on, on some other kind of RSN sort of thing. Um, it's less clear right now what this means necessarily for men's and women's basketball. Traditionally, BTN has uh, taken the, the bulk of that programming. I, surely some of it will be on FS1. But, you know, ESPN, family of networks has broadcast some Big Ten volleyball games, some, some women's basketball games. Those, those places will have to find other homes. Um, on one hand, it's going to bring in a just ridiculous amount of money. Um, I, 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 I'm likely around 1.2 billion with a B of, of yep. uh, you know, in, in, in total here, I'm hearing between six and seven years, uh, an individual institutions bringing in around a hundred million dollars just from television. Um, I understand expenses are going to go up, particularly on the travel side. That is a stupid amount of money, uh, particularly yep. because big 10 institutions were already some of the most well-capitalized in the country with their old deal, which is much less than that. Um, it, it also is, is, is potentially unique because it means Big Ten football will be on, you know, major broadcast television, not cable, but like broadcast TV uh, across all major time slots. And, and maybe a couple of times a year, even in the very late night time slot, if you make somebody kick off in the evening in Los Angeles, the Rutgers at UCLA game, maybe that kicks off at 10 o'clock Eastern and that becomes your, your old Pac-12 after dark kind of game. You're not going to make Ohio State do that. You might make Purdue or, you know, if, if, yeah. you want, if you want to do that once or twice, you are right, though. Um, ESPN and, and the Big Ten working together for, I want to say, 40 years, you no know, longer. Oh, yeah, I, I think it's yeah. said back to 1966. Maybe that yeah. was ABC. That's uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. well before well before I was born. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's been a long, a long relationship. It is it is significant from a, you know, just a, a marketing perspective to not be there on, anymore. ESPN is still the closest thing to a commissioner in, in, in college uh, sports, particularly on the college football side. Um, and, and they have some agenda setting power that other networks do not have. But you're also right. That does free up not just money, but broadcast windows for the Pac-12 and for the uh, Big 12, uh, who will be going to market either now or in the next 18 months. This is probably the best news the Pac-12 has gotten since UCLA and USC departed. Mm given that also now because the mountain west is not part of the espn family this is your only chance to be able to buy into the, that fourth tv window which will give uh, i would imagine those west coast schools a, a little bit more flexibility and leverage than they might have had say three weeks ago no that's great and then uh, certainly you know all of these deals you know are kind of bringing in the gap or not the gap but the uh, the transition from the traditional media uh, powers towards also looking at the future. You, you see Amazon, Apple, others getting yeah. involved from a from a streaming standpoint. Um, anything interesting in that area that catch, catches your attention um, related to some of these, these new media partners? I would absolutely expect Apple and Amazon to be major partners of the net, whatever the next Pac-12 media package looks like. Um, 
one, because, and, and this will be true for the Big 12 too, both of them are going to need as much cash as possible. Those, uh, I have been told that you know, high-end senior administrators are very concerned about competing in a world where the Big 10 and the SEC could double up their, their broadcast revenue. There's definitely a point where money can't buy a championship. Ask anybody that's been a fan of a Big Ten basketball team over the last 20 <laughs> years. You can have lots of money. You can still get you know, put into a garbage can by St. Peter's in a single elimination tournament. But um, you do need to have that money to be, to be successful, particularly for many Pac-12 schools that have significant facility debt. If you spent a gajillion dollars to renovate a stadium on a fault line, expecting that your broadcast revenue would be X mm. over 20 years, and now it's not, you need that money. And, and if that means you have to pay, you have to paywall more of your, your, your inventory to get more liquid cash, that's something that's going to be, that's going to be attractive in a way that the Big Ten doesn't necessarily have to do that. Um, I, I'm sure both of them are still going to have linear components, but Amazon and Apple have shown an increased aggressiveness in wanting to get into that world. And because there's only so many, only so many uh, time slots available, then it, it would make sense for, for those, those entities to be more aggressive. Well, and I think that as the, um, you know, as these deals are being renegotiated and as you're looking at this, I mean, I think this is an opportunity we were just talking about what can leagues do to try to contain some of these escalate, escalating costs. I mean, I think this is when these uh, member schools should get together and say, hey, okay, what are some shared, um, what are some costs that we can share as the league um, before the revenue comes into the school? Uh, and, and what we see is some schools have that agreement that a percentage of media rights goes to the university. But what they may not understand is that that's, that's the top line, but then they've got to invest in all this new equipment and additional yep. people. And is there something the conference offices could do to invest in the equipment before they make the distribution or even hire some SIDs at the conference level? that can be shared across the schools on different sports and things like that um, before distributing that down. And then that can help, um, you know, the schools and the people relying on the numbers to really understand, okay, this is really what we have to work with, as opposed to, um, you know, seeing this huge sum of money that they think is just available for, you know, spending willy nilly and maybe, you know, there's still a huge sum of money at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, but when you're talking about, uh, you know, universities becoming more aggressive in, um, you know, cutting institutional support, we're seeing across the board that, you know, student fees, students are no longer wanting to pay student fees um, and those those things changing. So, you know, what are some ways you can advocate mm. to get the true picture of what the money is that is available to support the athletic department as opposed to supporting the as a cost of revenue essentially of just supporting the tv functionality and could the conference bear some of those costs on behalf of its members as opposed to it trickling down to each school so those are some ideas that we have yeah. um, i don't know what you're seeing in that area i think the idea of the conference potentially shouldering more cost burden whether that's related to broadcast or comms or other things is worth exploring um, one place where I've seen more of an appetite in that world is on the NIL side. It may be cheaper for the conference to, you know, to, to, to set up an influencer account for everybody or to engage with a consulting service or some education entity at scale rather than everybody else do something slightly different and have to pay a little bit more money, especially in places where resources are really at a premium. 
Um, it might make sense for other kinds of recruiting software or transfer portal software or, or supplemental services where most schools are going to want to do something, but maybe you can get a pricing discount if you do it at the league level that's distributed. I hadn't really thought about anything on the, the conference-wide SID front or comms front or, or trying to handle things that way. I know that this may not be the kind of message that schools want to trumpet when they when they go through conference changes, but in the interest of, I mean, of telling the most accurate story, I think it would it's fair to say, hey, if we make this move, we should be uh, truthful about not just what this means on the revenue side, which is usually in the press release, right? Hey, we think we're excited about our ability to sell more tickets, to provide a more competitive experience for our athletes and, and, and be in these other markets, which some of those things will have direct revenue implications. Some of them will hypothetically so, but also be direct about what this means on the cost front, you know, and, and not just when you're soliciting for donations, but to be in public, right? If you are, say, an institution in Texas and you're joining the WAC, it's very accurate to say, I think, hey, we think this is the best opportunity to put our athletes in position to be in a two-bid league for the NCAA tournament. That will help us on the revenue front, help us on the exposure front, potentially help us you know, recruit more students. There's an enrollment play. If we can get in the tournament and beat Texas like Abilene Christian recently did or New Mexico State did with UConn. So we want to be in that most competitive environment. We also recognize that you can look at a map and we can too. And we know that Abilene, Texas and Seattle, Washington are far away. Um, and we can talk about what the league might do to manage travel costs, but to be direct and say, we anticipate increased travel expenses of X, Y, and Z. And that is because our university will need to charter six more flights a year, or we're going to have to drive the equipment truck across state lines this many times. And you know th that has to be a component of all of this, particularly when there is a big number and a media contract that's spelled out, which is going to be the case for most G5 leagues. That is usually not part of the press release. And, you know, sometimes somebody like me can try to dig through and try to piece it together and call Anthony Travel and call some Dobos and, and try to figure it out. But that is also something that school and league officials can, can share. And rarely, I think, if you just tell the truth, are people going to make fun of you for it or, or freak out? Because generally, you know, those costs are mostly um, defensible. Right. Or they might you might be able to demonstrate that it's actually not as expensive as you think, because if you're buying lots of charter flights over a year or, yes, you're traveling long distances, but you're in Chicago and you can fly direct and you don't have to rent vans to go drive to Greeley, Colorado or something, then even if the distance is large, you can say, like, I understand fans may be concerned about this. This actually isn't doesn't impose a significant financial burden on the university. The only way to clear up that misconception is by telling the truth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, no matter what the issue is, whether it's additional, you know, additional revenues from conference realignment or whatever the case may be, I mean, the business offices are some of the most responsible people in college athletics and they are doing the right thing um, in an insane industry <laughs> and they're not yeah. being irresponsible. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, not feeling so self-conscious that everyone, you know, everyone that's questioning you is questioning you with, with negative intent. Um, you know, really it's just to try to get more information. Um, that's, that's, that, that's, it's usually what it is. And, and that doesn't mean that there might not be some negative intent, right. But that negative intent can also be dissipated a bit with accurate information. It's if, if there's an unknown, like take, for example, the, the, the financial and travel student like cost burden for the LA schools joining the Big Ten, right? You can look at a map. 
And anyone that spent time in Big Ten country and go like, oh my, that's a, that's a gigantic gap. It's going to be very expensive. It's a lot of long flights. It's going to be a big burden on athletes. And you know what? Unless the LA schools are taking this Big Ten money and building a Hyperloop, it is going to be that. It is going to, it, it, like, there's no way around the fact that you're going to be in airplanes a lot. Um, the LA schools have not done this. Theoretically, if they did and said, hey, you know, one way that we're going to mitigate this is through tra- you know, chartering flights to almost everywhere. And maybe most of you don't understand how large a travel party is. Um, but that's what that actually looks like. And here's where we, we figure it out. And thanks to, you know, the Wasserman family stepping up or thanks to this other donor thing, we, we think we can cover that. That takes the wind out of that, that argument a little bit. If you can mm-hmm. actually talk about a chapter and verse rather than having people having to go through indirectly and call Delta and, and make better estimates and maybe then feel less inclined to be charitable. Um, like you're, you're not taking the head of the, the, the piece of the argument away, but you have context to be able to shape that discussion um, that maybe NBC doesn't have. Yeah, yeah, I think that's all really, really good points to think about for schools as they're communicating this information. Um, the last hot topic that we want to cover um, is one that uh, I think we've actually said this before. So we're sick of talking about it. <laughs> But it's it's never oh, like oh boy, what could this be? <laughs> <laughs> um, the wild, wild west of name, image, and likeness. Um, so you know, I think you know we've seen in the news, uh, like Jamie Pollard just spoke out about his concerns about the sustainability of these large sums of money coming out. Um, you see, you know, dozens. It seems, feels like dozens of new NIL collectives popping up every day or week. Um, so, Matt, do you want to talk a little bit about what you're seeing, as well as a story you put out this week um, on yeah. the NIL Education Information Center? Yeah, let me let me try to think if you're of, of how I can kind of sum up what I'm hearing. Like the the number one thing, and this ties into what I wrote about this week, is finding verified information is really challenging. And when I read a report about a collective offering a big sum of money or a recruit getting a big sum of money. My reporting experience has led, has led me to believe that the real answer is probably about 20% of what's being reported. Mm. Um, it's the, the same thing when someone throws out a gigantic number for an NFL contract and those things aren't guaranteed. You don't see the fine print. It's probably not a $400 million deal. It's probably something you know much, much, uh, much smaller. The individuals that um, have been most aggressive about trying to get certain numbers out into the public, um, certain NIL attorneys, I think... I can say this without getting myself in trouble. Uh, They have a vested interest in doing that. That might not necessarily be aligned with their client's best interest and certainly not your best interest. So I would take all of those with large containers worth of salt. Um, But this is a challenge, though, because even if you reckon, you know, you, the the handsome and well-educated esteemed listener of this podcast, will look at that and go, "Hmm, I don't know if that football recruit is actually getting a million and a half dollars. You know who is reading that on slicedbread.messageboard.tumblr.com? Um, your assistant coaches are reading that the, your parents are reading that your fans are reading that. And then they're wondering why we aren't offering the, the gross national product of Nicaragua to go sign some recruits. And, <laughs> and you have a big messaging problem because at some point the perception becomes the reality. And this is a huge challenge. So, to, I mean, like I, I gave this example in the newsletter, but, uh, this is a real world example about the collective NIL space, which is, I, I think shows how, what a major challenge this is. I was talking with an AD who has an athlete who's a baseball player, very good baseball player, somebody who's probably not going to be uh, an elite draft pick, somebody who's not going to get $2 million in like signing bonus to go with the Rangers or something. 
but somebody who could be an everyday player or a mo- almost everyday player for like a top 20 SEC program. Somebody who could definitely play at Florida. Somebody who could definitely, you know, right, compete at that level. And they're at a mid-major. And the athlete wants to stay at that school and is progressing toward his degree and is having a great experience. But he also recognizes, hey, I might not make the majors. I might not even make AAA ball. So theoretically, if there's a collective out there that's going to offer me a hundred grand, I need to take it. And you know, if and if that person was a men's basketball player of that you know caliber or big production caliber, I would say chances are you could probably get that much money from shaking down a collective. If you left from I don't know a big sky school and and hit the portal and joined a Big Ten school, somebody would probably give you a hundred thousand dollars if you are like that level of player. But for baseball, um, the AD realized that that he didn't really know. And he's like, you know, I can look it up and I only see five or six collectives that are publicly supporting baseball players. And I can see a little bit of chatter on social media, but is the going rate for a third baseman who bats sixth in the lineup, is that 10 grand guaranteed? Mm. Is it 50 grand? Is it a hundred grand? And that person needs to know because they got to know before they hit the portal because they can't have those conversations otherwise. And the AD is like, if it's a hundred thousand dollars, I'm not going to look that person's dad in the eye and say, you should stay here. You should go get a hundred grand. You might not make a hundred grand in a year for a decade. That, that, you know, I don't think anybody can blame them for that. Um, and the lack of that kind of information that's verified and, and the, the lack of scruples within the agents working in this world, most of whom are not registered, creates a big problem. Uh, my hope is that down the line, um, something like what Oliver Luck is trying to do at Arizona State, mm-hmm. which is I, he described it to me as like a Zillow for NIL deals. Blake Lawrence at Open Doors is trying to create a rate card or something similar. My naive hope is that that level of price transparency that actually collects stuff from collectives will help people make better informed decisions from players to ADs to brands to everything else. But all of this is only as good as the data you get from it. And I can't build that collective because I've done this. I filed the FOIAs to go look at the compliance paperwork that people submit to get an idea for NIL activity. Most of that's not an open record. I tried. I asked very politely. I asked less politely. I don't have the money to sue everybody for it. It's not worth it, right? Like, um, and a lot of the collectives are doing this off the books. God knows the players aren't submitting this stuff to compliance for, for most of these things. And if it's not being captured an influencer and it's not being captured by anybody else, all we have is maybe a couple untrustworthy uh, lawyers and the text ags message board word against everyone else. And I, when I, when I hear people say this isn't sustainable, that's more what I think about. The money's out there, but I don't know how you would expect mature brands or uh, brands that want to enter into the space for something other than like money laundering bag manning. They're not going to do it if they don't feel like they have the information to make informed choices. And right now, I don't think that's what's in the marketplace. Well, and you hit on a couple of really good points there that, you know, again, that a lot of these contracts you're, you're not going to find under FOIA. They're not... Uh, I think that's what people forget is these are private contracts between an athlete, an individual and a company outside of the university. So the university doesn't have a power to get it. I mean, there's um, and in theory, they're all supposed to be reported uh, to the compliance office. But as you know, and as you already stated that, you know, so many of them are going to be off the books and the percentage that actually do is is probably going to be pretty small. So it's interesting. You could even have cases, you know not only between schools or between conferences, you know, even play the players on the same team, uh, maybe in the dark about, you know, what others are making. And then we know, unfortunately, then you get rumors and innuendo and all of those things that, that drive it and it, it becomes drama. Un- unquestionably. I, I, you know, what I, what I've been hearing when I've talked to folks at compliance 
is that they are lucky to get 20, 25% of they think of NIL activity um, actually reported. And some of that is nefarious. Some of that is because 20 year olds, God bless them, suck at paperwork. (laughs) Like the the flakiness level of like just your median college student that needs to be put in there. Like this this is like just a pet peeve of mine. It's very easy for, you know, uh, middle-aged dads, I think to superimpose their own values and thinking on what college athletes should be doing, forgetting what it was like when they were 20, um, particularly 20 year olds that are working 30 hours a week on sports and then also going to school. So yes, they're going to flake on filling out forms and getting back to brands and doing some of those little things and maybe not make decisions the exact same way. Um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't have a, a great, a great answer to it now because I don't think most people expected the amount of institutional money that would coalesce this quickly with collectives or, or, or get involved at this level. I think, I think most people projected boosters were going to be involved. I don't think anything, you know, what, what Tennessee has built or what division street looks like. I don't know if that was in the roadmap for what year one at NIL would look like to say nothing of a lot of these groups are I made this joke before, but it's not a joke. There literally are message board posters just passing a hat. Like the, sophistication level varies enormously. And that makes partnering uh, a big challenge. Yeah. And I think, you know, universities are just trying to wrap their heads around, you know, you know, the NIL is here to stay. These collectives are where they're going. What can we do within the constraints of our state law even to work with these collectives and where do we need to step out and not be involved, but, you know, whether they like it or not, because, you know, over the course of the last year, and even before last July, when we were asking about, do you feel like your donations may change because of NIL, you know, the fundraisers, you know, they were like, well, we don't know, but we hope not. But I don't think leading up to July 1 of last year, the idea of a collective, and especially at the the breadth that they're out there was even conceived. And so- you know, it just continues to change. And it's almost like, you know, I feel like in college athletics, you know, when you have the the parent say to the kid, oh, well, if Jimmy jumped off a cliff, would you too? The, the answer is yes, <laughs> we have to. Yep. Yeah. It's the copycat industry, no doubt about and, it. And you just don't want to be the one taking a selfie while you're falling off the cliff and posting it and getting in trouble for it. Um, and so I think right now they're just trying to say, how, how can we do this? The, the right way um, so that we don't jeopardize our compliance and we are preparing and protecting our student athletes um, yeah. for what's coming, um, but not falling behind in the arms race. And so it is a really, um, really touchy situation, but, you know, I'll also say one other area that where numbers are inflated and are, are these announcements of these car deals. And honestly, I think there will be fewer of these because yeah just some of the other deals are so big and where we all thought cars were going to be the big deal. Um, but like CJ Stroud and what is it? $2 million car deal. Well, he wasn't given a $2 million car. He's given the right to drive a $2 million car for a limited period of time. And so that doesn't mean he has $2 million. Um, but mm-hmm. something interesting that, uh, that I've learned uh, through this from another reporter that called me to understand the taxability of these car deals um, was that some car dealers aren't even issuing 1099s. And as I started to wrap my head around it and think, okay, well, we work with car dealerships in our firm. So why would that happen? And, and recognizing, oh, this, 
this could happen because of the way they rely on their accounting systems to do things and this new way of of transacting, especially in these smaller town college town car dealerships, not these big metropolitan ones that that they just haven't thought of it yet. And so, you know, you talked about 20 year olds not knowing how to handle paperwork. I mean, even, you know, keeping up with their 1099s is going to be challenging enough, much less like knowing where they should get one and don't get one. Um, so I, I worry about the tax side, of course, and we've talked till we've been blue in the face about that. Um, but are, what else are you seeing just with, um, you know, these kinds of deals? And is there anything in, because in, you've called me and asked me about tax type questions in the past. Yeah. Um, you know, what else are you seeing out there? Or, or do you, would you like more information on? I, th- there are there are two other trends that I think would be of, of note to this audience. One is the number one complaint that we hear from athletes across all levels. I was literally talking to a high level Big Ten athlete about this literally today, is that they feel like they're getting no information from their school or almost no information from their school. And by that, I mean, they do not know mm-hmm. what, they, what they don't know what open doors is. They don't know what a marketplace is. They have, they, they, they know intellectually they need to pay taxes, but they have no idea what kind of paperwork they need to be re- recovering. They know, hey, I know I'm not supposed to do a deal with like one of these three industries, but that's moot because no one's calling me anyway, because I haven't even started. And, and they're not even engaging in this world. And I think schools err if they think, well, compliance is an open doors problem or compliance is a such and such, or if they're motivated, that they're, they're going to go find it. It doesn't matter if you're Florida or Florida uh, or South Florida or Florida International or Florida Tech, like this has to be something that you have a plan to communicate to. And if you're resource challenged, the answer might be that has to come from our business school. Or that has to come from our accounting department or that has to come outside of athletics because somebody on this campus, if you're a real university, has like has, has useful information about starting a business or about engaging with this world for your athletes. It has to be provided to them. The other thing is that I, I think many schools and athletes err when they think that NIL always means social media endorsements or live events. And the, the growth trajectory where I, that I've really seen here has been on the camp space and on the private instructional space. And what I think would be a smart thing to do for an institution that was looking to differentiate themselves or, or to find a way to make this into uh, an additive experience for athletes would be to sit down there with your business school and your athletic department and your attorneys and your risk management team and say, come up with what would our athletes need in order to host their own private camp using our facilities? How much should we charge in rent for that one day? Um, how can we explain what kind of insurance coverage they need or how they would buy that from our university? And, and say, okay, okay, you guys pay for the t-shirts. You guys come up with a marketing plan. And then you can come in, in June and you can run your 10th grade, your 10-year-old seven-on-seven camp here on, on the field. You pay us that and you get to keep everything else. And that's an NIL opportunity. And we're not going to invite anybody for you. We're not going to broker anything for you. But we can give you the here's what you would do to not get sued kind of uh, uh, skills, which is something that it's going to be harder for athletes to pick up themselves. What you're seeing are people cold calling their old high school or cold calling their church ball team or you know, reaching out to people down the street, which is wonderful. But I think that there are ways to take that further that won't cost you, just you the school money and might actually be additive and, and come away with a more educational experience. Because if we look at all of this as just what, you know, shilling for stuff on Instagram or on TikTok or something, um, not only is that going to 
um, not include most of your athletes, but it will become a challenge as your coaches and your other staffers ask about your NIL strategy. I love That's that. Great. Love that idea. You should become mm-hmm. a consultant, Matt. <laughs> I, you know, there, there are days when I'm like, how am I going to find 10,000 words to write about again? Like for, for this weekend. And, 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 I, and, I, and I think about it, but I, I mean, I, this is information I am more, I, I, ideologically feel like it's really important to give for free. Um, mm. I deep in my heart believe, uh, and maybe I, I err in doing this, maybe I should be more cynical, but I still believe in this enterprise's ability as to serve as an educational vehicle. And I read the same Texas A&M message boards that everybody else does. And I get all of that, but I, I particularly for Olympic sport athletes, I really honest to God believe that there's ways to change people's lives through this to help build generational wealth, to help build new skill sets. And I don't want to be so bogged down in the depressing minutia, which by God is there. I'll write about it. But like, there's, there's so much other opportunity. And I know, and I know you guys know, it's difficult to get everybody in higher ed to talk to each other. It's difficult Mm -hmm. to go across departments. It's difficult to start new things because by God, you're all so overworked and I get it. But I also see that that potential is there. And I, I, I'm excited to write about and to share other people who begin to reach it. Yeah, that's awesome. So um, we are running, almost running out of time. Um, yeah. We would love to keep talking about all the hot topics that are out there, but a couple honorable mention hot topics um, that I personally love, probably number one on my list is Juice Kiffin because Juice Kiffin is adorable. And um his, his Twitter account makes me laugh um, almost <laughs> as much as your Twitter account does, Matt, when your daughter takes over. Um, another, another hot topic that I saw today was the um, upgrades to the Davis Wade Stadium at Mississippi State and the refrigerators yes. that are going to be on the balcony. And I'm already making plans to do a live podcast with, with a brew in one of those refrigerators <laughs> in their stadium. Um, it's really exciting. And then... Um, and then third, uh, Big Ten Volleyball Media Days, um, which I just thought it was fantastic that a women's sport, Olympic sport uh, was featured. Um, you yeah, know, I was there. It was great. Area. Yeah. Um, I, I, I wrote about this and I've joked about it with other people. That was one of the, I think, the best events that I've, been, I've, I've gone to, in part because it was a delightful anecdote to all of the cynicism mm. um, from covering mm. business at college athletics for the last three months. Cause yep. when you get in there and you, like, I, I think you, and you talk to volleyball players for six hours for two days in a row, one, many of them are really funny. They have great personalities. They're high achievers. Many of the coaches have big personalities to it. It's literally fun to talk to them. But if you're involved in collegiate volleyball right now, you think, look, the wind's on our sails right? That we're, we're, we're going to be on international television here in the Big Ten. We're on linear more often. A lot of pe- more and more people are coming to our events. High school participation for volleyball has eclipsed basketball in this country. It's a big deal for women. You don't face the same existential questions that you do when you talk to Major League Baseball. Nobody's asking you, is volleyball dying? They're asking you, how do we take the next step? Because th- there's, there's good things happening. That's fun. Um, yeah. We don't always get to do that as reporters. Uh, when I've covered a lot of other media events, like Kirk Ferentz doesn't want to talk to you at media days. Most Big Ten football coaches don't want to talk to you. SEC football coaches don't want to talk to you. This is a, a perfunctory event that they have to do. It's a media obligation. The 
the, the people at Big Ten Volleyball, and I imagine if the SEC decided to do this for softball or gymnastics, and I hope that they will, those folks will want to talk. And that is a, that's an exciting experience for everybody. Yeah. Well, I had one uh, honorable mention, one came up in the D ticker the other day, which often has finishes with uh, D1 ticker, which finishes with, with some good stories. Um, apparently, there's a dispute in South Carolina over the mascot Sir Big Spur uh, between the old owners of it and the new owners and um, the use of that trademark name. And it has to do with the fact that the old owners and new owners have disagreements over the cutting of uh, the clipping of the bird's comb, which is the red bit on the top of the head and helps regulate the rooster's circulatory process. Um, and it has to do back with the idea of fighting Gamecocks and all of that and different views on uh, bird welfare. So there's a big hot dispute in South Carolina over Sir Big Spur. And I, I thought that was a good, worthy of honorable mention for a hot topic today. Matt, do you have any other hot topics? <laughs> Man, I, I got to tell you, I saw the big spur thing and I'm like, I need to spend 3000 words on this. I need to go. I, need, I, I, I literally like, yeah, I have like a, a board uh, and I have like a the dual monitor set up here. One of them is a board of like tracking story ideas. Like, all right, I'm working through this D2 football story. I'm working on this other thing. There's a big column right now that just says call bird expert. And, and I don't know when I'm going to get a chance to do it. Because I feel like, all right, if I'm going to write about this, I have to take this extremely stupid thing extremely seriously. And I need to talk to like multiple, like, you know, listen, if you, if you, if you specialize in bird law, uh, please call me at 740, right? I want to, I want to be able to talk to you about this. This is, this is deeply funny. Well, we're definitely excited that you have that on your radar for a special exclusive. So that's, that's really good. <laughs> Uh, and of course, we'll we'll finish up with uh, the name of our uh, podcast, News and Brews, is an homage to the fact that Katie and I join enjoy brews of many different types, and uh, uh, whether it's beer, coffee, soda, wine, and all. Um, so, um, really, just wanted to go through our beer, our our brew choices of all different types today. So, uh, Katie, what are you going to be enjoying, or have you enjoyed recently? Well, right now as we're recording, I'm drinking water because our our um, hallway and our office we're in a water drinking challenge right now. But um, we like to feature brews as we travel to different college towns. And over the summer, uh, we got to spend some time in Athens, Georgia, and stopped at Creature Comforts. And um, I actually brought some cans home with me of their mixed media, which is a of course an IPA. I talk about IPAs a lot, and it's got coconut in it, but it's not overly coconut, and it's it was a really good one, um, Ken. So um, we were recently in Las Vegas uh, for the NACTA and CABMA conventions and all of that. And uh, uh, on a night that you, that Kate, you, Katie, were going out with a uh, sports media personality and I was left to my own, I had to find a good place to go drink. Uh, so I found a place called Beer Zombies Bottle Shop, which was just absolutely outstanding, amazing selection of craft beer and a lot of interesting characters at the bar also so um that was that was my enjoyment that evening while you were out with bigger names than me <laughs> yes i was uh going to Cirque du Soleil with Christy Dosh and that was also a wonderful time and we enjoyed wine that night um uh Matt what about you I know you're not a beer fan um no. but are you enjoying anything bubbly I, I, I am. I, I, I always feel bad because you know, this, this is a tough question for a practicing Mormon where you're not, you don't only drink alcohol <laughs> or, or coffee, but or coffee, yeah. or coffee. Yeah. But because, you know, uh, I, I typically do have a beverage with me beyond just water, which, you know, you have to drink to make sure that my kidneys don't fall apart. But with the, with the craziness of the last of this summer and with my publishing schedule, um, I need to be awake. And, uh, you know, I, during this conversation, I have been enjoying 
the uh, the, the beautiful uh, ultra peachy keen monster energy drink flavor, which I understand is probably <laughs> should be something for automotive use only and like not fit for human consumption. But I, I think it's it's the peach that somehow makes you forget that you're eating like taurine mouse chemicals. This, the, the, mm. they, 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 monster doesn't sponsor extra points. I can't imagine why, but like it, it does taste good. <laughs> And um, allows me to not only be able to write everything here and do the research, but then be an engaged dad uh, to two little girls who are here on summer break and uh, want to do things besides read books when I'm done with work. Yes, yes. Well, um, Matt, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today and helping, hopefully helping give our listeners some new ideas on how they can effectively tell their financial story. Um, where can people to go to get more information from you? Uh, that's my, it's been my pleasure. Friends, you can email me at matt at extrapointsmb.com. I would love to talk to any of you. And I'm also happy to talk without the recorder on and just to learn more about what the interesting things happening in the department. I have those kind of conversations all the time. You could find me on Twitter. Uh, I don't recommend it, but you could find me on Twitter at Matt Brown EP, but the email is probably the best way to find me. And you can find Extra Points, uh, my newsletter covering business and policy, higher education, off the field stories and college athletics at extrapointsmb.com. Thanks, Matt. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Cheers. Cheers. To learn more about the James Moore and Company Collegiate Athletics and Higher Education segments, go to jmco.com. And don't forget to sign up for insights to get our latest industry updates, news and events delivered straight to your inbox. You can also follow us on Twitter at jmcohighered and on LinkedIn for the latest news as the landscape of collegiate athletics and higher education is continually evolving. 